Hello, and welcome to the City Church Evansville podcast. My name is Sean Little. I'm the community and teaching pastor here at City Church. And please pardon my summer cold. We began a new series today entitled Zero Hour. We live in sobering times, and the church would be wise to take heed of what is to come, if not immediately, imminently. Now, we turn our attention to the first in our new series, Zero Hour, taught by lead pastor Jeff Kincaid. As you can see on the graphic on the front of your program, or even on the slide behind me, yeah, there we go, Uh, we're beginning a new series this morning, and it's called Zero Hour, and it's subtitled, What Will You Do? I feel like I need to explain what I mean by that expression, zero hour, because it can be used in many different ways. For instance, you could use that expression to refer to the start of a military operation, like it's zero hour. Or you might use it to refer to the moment that a rocket is launched into outer space. But you can also use it to refer to like a crisis moment of some kind in which you've got to make a a significant decision that will have uh, significant implications for you and for other people. For instance, a woman who's tired of her boyfriend's lack of clarity about their future, she might say to him, listen, pal, it's zero hour. You need to make a decision. If you like it, put a ring on it, or I'm moving on. Make a decision. So that could be used uh, in that way. But here's how I'm using that phrase for purposes of this series. By zero hour, I'm referring to a moment in which you have to make a decision to either deny Christ or suffer some kind of significant persecution. For instance, if a time were to come into your life when it's either deny Christ or lose your freedom, or maybe deny Christ or lose your career, or even deny Christ or lose your home and your savings, what would you do in that moment? That's what I mean by zero hour here in this series that we're going to be in for the next four weeks. There are, of course... Christ followers all over the world today for whom zero hour is an everyday reality. I want you to uh, just look at these statistics. I'm going to put them up on the screen. Let me just read them for those that may be listening on our podcast. Each month, 322 Christians are killed around the world for their faith in Christ. 214 churches and Christian properties are destroyed each month around the world. 722 forms of violence are committed against Christians all around the world, such as beatings, abductions, rapes, arrests, and forced marriages. Zero hour for these people. In fact, according to the United States Department of State, Christians in more than 60 countries face persecution from their governments or surrounding neighbors simply because of their belief in Jesus Christ. For people in these countries, any day could be zero hour for them in which they have to make a decision to either publicly affirm their faith in Christ and suffer persecution or deny their faith in Christ and avoid persecution. Zero hour. Now to date, One of the great luxuries that we've had here in America is the freedom to practice Christianity without fear of significant reprisal or persecution. 
And while it may seem that the idea of that kind of persecution uh, for faith in Christ is unrealistic here in America, it may seem that way today, there are many well-respected people who see signs that such a zero hour may be coming to America sooner than you think, and maybe even to your life. Recently, uh, one such highly respected author by the name of Rod Dreher wrote and published an important book. The book is called The Benedict Option, and it has sparked enormous dialogue among theologians and pastors about the state of the church in America and the future of Christianity in America. And just to give you an idea of the importance of this book, the New York Times called it the most important Christian book in the last decade. In fact, it's so important that we as a staff are reading it here at City Church. And in this book, Dreher warns that the currents of secularism are moving so swiftly and rapidly here in America that there are very likely people who who are alive today who will live to see the effective death of Christianity within Western civilization. Sobering words, aren't they? Listen to, what, listen to what he says about what he and other highly respected Christian thinkers see coming in the very near future. He says this, we'll put it on the screen. Most Americans, he's talking about sometime in the near future, will not only reject many things Christians consider good, but will even call them evil. Part of the change that we have to make is accepting that in the years to come, faithful Christians may have to choose between being a good American and being a good Christian. In a nation where God and country are so entwined, the idea that one's citizenship might be at radical odds with one's faith is a new one. Now, there's a, there's a great deal of controversy about Dreyer's conclusions regarding how followers of Christ should respond to this increasingly anti-Christian sentiment. But there really is relatively little disagreement about his assessment of what's happening in America. Now, whether a time like Dreyer warns of will ever come to America, only God knows that. But one of the things that the Scriptures make clear is that we would be very wise to be prepared for it ahead of time. And to that end... I want to spend the next four weeks in this series that I'm calling Zero Hour. And I want to look at a few faithful men in the book of Daniel and how they stayed faithful in the face of sometimes terrifying persecution. And so if you have a Bible with you this morning, turn with me in it to Daniel chapter 1. Daniel uh, chapter 1, it's in the Old Testament. It's near the end of the Old Testament. And if you will find Daniel this morning... I want to start reading in just a moment at verse 3, Daniel chapter 1, verse 3. First, let me just give you a little context while you're trying to find it. Uh, In the same way that Adam and Eve had been exiled from the Garden of Eden after disobeying God, at the time of the book of Daniel, all of Israel, both the northern and the southern kingdoms, have also been exiled. They've been exiled from their land for the same reason that Adam and Eve were, for disobeying God. And God had always warned Israel that if they continued to disobey him, if they continued to worship false idols, that he would indeed allow them to be exiled from their land. They are now part of the great Babylonian empire. They were conquered by Babylon, and they have been absorbed into Babylon, and they are under the rule now and the reign of a king by the name of Nebuchadnezzar. The first two verses of Daniel chapter 1 summarize some of that historical context. 
So I want to start reading today at verse 3. We've already talked about the context. Let me just give you, uh, let's just start here, I'm sorry. Let me just start here. Chapter 1 of Daniel, verse 3. Let's start reading there. Then the king ordered Ashpenaz, chief of his court officials, to bring into the king's service some of the Israelites from the royal family and the nobility. Young men, without any physical defect, handsome, showing aptitude for every kind of learning, well-informed, quick to understand, and qualified to serve in the king's palace. He was to teach them the language and the literature of the Babylonians. The king assigned them a daily amount of food and wine from the king's table. They were to be trained for three years, and after that, they would enter the king's service. Among those who were chosen were some from Judah. That's the southern kingdom of Israel. These four men were named Daniel, Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah. Now, let me just stop there for a minute, because I want you to understand that Daniel and the other guys that are mentioned here are very likely only teenagers at this point in time. They were among the first wave of captives that were deported to Babylon from Israel. They were torn from their native land. They were torn from their families. They were torn from their friends. And as far as we know, they never got to see their native land again. These kids are the cream of the crop of the Hebrew kids. Nebuchadnezzar, uh, his empire is growing rapidly. And so he needs men of great ability to fill positions of power and responsibility in his administration. And so he institutes this, essentially, leadership development plan to identify these future leaders and prepare them for leadership by educating them in the finest Babylonian schools and then feeding them the finest food in all of his kingdom to ensure that they were healthy. In fact, the very food that was prepared for the king himself. Now, I realize that some of you come from, uh, some of you come from church backgrounds. And in your church background in the past, you may have been taught that what's happening here is that Nebuchadnezzar is trying to brainwash these young men and turn them from the Hebrew faith into, essentially, polytheists like Nebuchadnezzar, worshipers of pagan idols. But that's really not what's happening here. There's really nothing here that would indicate this. Nebuchadnezzar seems to operate on the principle that diversity of culture and diversity of religion strengthens his empire rather than weakens it. And so... Identifying and developing future leaders seems less diabolical and it seems very much more strategic and forward-thinking than anything else, okay? So it's not, about, it's not about trying to indoctrinate and brainwash these guys. It's about, it's just a future, it's, about, it's, a, it's a development plan for future leaders, okay? That's what this is. Now let's pick up in verse 7. The chief official gave them new names to Daniel, Belteshazzar, to Hannah, Shadrach, to Mishael, Meshach, and to Azariah, Abednego. Now, these would be names that are Babylonian uh, Gentile names rather than Hebrew names. But Daniel resolved not to defile himself with the royal food and wine, and he asked the chief official for permission not to defile himself in this way. Now, God had caused the official to show favor and compassion to Daniel, but the Official told Daniel, he said, I'm afraid of my lord, the king, who has assigned your food and drink. Why should he see you looking worse than the other young men your age? The 
king would then have my head because of you. Now, uh, again, let me just stop. It's not, enti- it's not entirely clear why Daniel is so concerned about this food and wine. It's possible that some of the foods that the king would have served would have been unclean in the law of Moses, <clears throat> under which Daniel, as a Hebrew, lived. That's possible. It's also possible that the food that the king would have had served to them would have been associated with the worship of heathen gods. Not really sure exactly what Daniel's objection is. But in either case, Daniel saw this as defiling, and he didn't want to be a part of it. So Daniel asks the guard if he can opt out of that part of this leadership development program. And in verse 12, he actually proposes an alternate diet. And remember, this is a teenage kid that we're talking about here. Okay, watch this. Verse 12, he says, <clears throat> excuse me, please test your servants for 10 days. Give us nothing to eat but vegetables and water to drink. Then compare our appearance with that of the young men who eat the royal food and treat your servants in accordance with what you see. So he agreed to this and tested them for 10 days. And at the end of the 10 days, they looked healthier and better nourished than any of the young men who ate the royal food. So the guard took away their choice food and the wine they were to drink, and he gave them the vegetables instead. At the end of the time set by the king to bring them into his service, the chief official presented them to Nebuchadnezzar. The king talked with them, and he found none equal to Daniel, Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah. So they entered the king's service. Now, before I say anything more, I, I, I just feel like I need to dispel the notion that this is... Uh, here to be some kind of diet plan that God is prescribing that everyone should become vegetarians. That's not what this is about. My my wife and I once knew this lady who was convinced that this passage was prescribing an all-vegetable diet, and there were these little gummy bears that she wanted to sell us for our kids that would, I guess it was to help them like vegetables. I don't know. And she told us, this was her selling point, she told us that these gummy bears had such an effect on her little girl that sometimes when the little girl was outside playing and wanted a snack, she'd just grab a leaf off of a tree and eat it. And I was thinking, I'm sorry, lady, but you need to buy that little girl a Snicker bar right now before it's too late, because that is just not, that's just not right. So if you want to be a vegetarian, knock yourself out, just don't blame it on this passage in Daniel. That's not the idea here in this passage at all. In fact, implied in this passage is that God worked supernaturally here to help these young men be, such, be so much more healthy than their peers who ate the royal food. Did you notice the time frame? Did you notice that? It was 10 days, just 10 days. And they were healthier than all of their other, their, their other peers who ate the royal food. Just 10 days, verse 15 says. Listen, have you ever seen a vegetarian in their first 10 days? Have you ever seen one? They look like they would give you their firstborn child for a hot pocket. So it's not about the fact that this is not about the vegetables. This is about God doing something supernatural. Thank you so much, John. I appreciate it. Doing something supernatural to make these kids look so much more healthy. Okay? Now, with that myth dispelled, here's what I want to do. I just want to spend the remaining moments, and I want to make just two points about conflict between faith in Christ and the culture from this passage of Scripture. And I should say that we'll also look at the same passage next week because I think that there's a lot more here than I have time to talk about today. So we're going to look at the very same passage 
next week. But today, let me just start with this point. Here we go. Start with this. I want to start with the inevitability of persecution. For people who have faith in Christ, I want you to understand the inevitability of persecution. There was something that happened in the first two verses of this book. We didn't read those verses. But what happens there, it's very subtle, but I think it's also very intentional. And the purpose of this little thing that happens was to remind us that persecution is inevitable because the history of the world is a tale of two warring cities, a human city, and the city of God. Let me show you. Back in verse 2, the text says that after Nebuchadnezzar had defeated the king of Judah, it says that he plundered Israel's temple, which was in Israel's capital city, Jerusalem. And he took the plunder, and here's how uh, verse 2 says it. He says that he put it in the temple of his God. Go ahead and put that up on the screen. Yeah, he put it in the temple of his God in Babylonia. That's how the NIV reads. But the actual word, the Hebrew word, is not Babylonia, it's actually the word Shinar. Shinar. Now, Shinar, the book of Genesis tells us, way back in the book of Genesis, Shinar is the location of the very first city that was built after Adam and Eve's sin in the garden. And the name of that city was Babel. And it becomes the capital city of Babylon from which Nebuchadnezzar rules. Now, you need to know something about Babel. Babel was built around a philosophy that still exists today. Genesis 11 describes Babel as a city that was built to defy God. It was, a, it was like a, a city that was built. It was, a, it was to be a fist in the face of God that said, we don't need you. Look at what we can do. We don't need your, we don't need your rules. We don't need your authority. We don't, we don't need you to be our sovereign. We don't need you to be our king. We're just fine without you. And you might recognize that that spirit of Babel is still very prevalent in American culture today. Let me tell you why. Just a quick little history lesson. Very quick. Hang with me, okay? I know that you're thinking about lunch and all of that, but just a quick little history lesson here. Centuries after Babel was built, uh, the Greek philosopher Protagoras encapsulated the very spirit behind Babel when he made one of his most famous statements some of you may be familiar with. His statement was this, that man is the measure of all things. Not God. Man is the measure of of all things. That's the idea behind Babel, the human city. Man, not God, is the measure of all things. Now, many centuries later, Protagoras' idea became the rallying cry of the European Renaissance in the 14th century. And his idea was named, here's what it was named, listen now, talking about the human city, Babel, his idea was named humanism. Do you hear it? Humanism, human being, are the measure of all things. That's the idea behind the human city, Babel. Now, I don't know if you realize it or not, but today the prevailing philosophy in Western culture is this very humanism. We call it today secular humanism. 
And this is the idea system that Rod Dreher and many other theologians and Christian thinkers believe is winning in America. Listen to some of the Listen to some of the phrases that come out of this idea system and see if, you, see if you recognize them. See if you think, perhaps, that secular humanism is winning in America. Listen to these phrases. No one should be able to tell a woman what to do with her body. You recognize that phrase? How about this one? The Supreme Court will decide what constitutes marriage. Man, not God. You can determine which gender you identify with regardless of how you were born into the world. Can you hear it? Those are the sentiments of the human city. That's one side of this battle that is going on. On the one hand, the human city. And then on the other hand, you have the city of God. After the exodus of the Jewish people from Egypt, God calls the people of Israel together. And he says, I want you to be my people. And he says, I will make you a radically different countercultural nation. Like, you'll be an alternate society in a larger society. So you'll be like a city within a city, you people. You'll be radically different. And the reason that, that the nation was to be different was that they operated not based upon the principles of secular humanism, but they were to operate on the basis of God-given laws and instructions and the belief that man will only flourish in relationship with his creator. Like like the ideas of, of the city of God, that man needs God desperately, without a relationship to God, without grace, that no man could ever have a relationship with God. Man so desperately needs God if humanity is to flourish, to experience shalom, wholeness of life, peace, prosperity, all of that. It's the only way. It's the only hope for man. That was the idea behind the city of God. Centuries later, the New Testament says that Jesus Christ was the embodiment of God himself and the embodiment of the laws of God and he fulfilled those laws so that anyone who has become a follower of Christ has become an alien in the city of man and a resident, a citizen of the city of God. So now all of history is the spiritual battle between these two cities, the human city and the city of God. And it is in the middle of this very battle that Daniel finds himself here, where his faith conflicts with the king of Babylon. How would you like to be a teenager in that situation? You need to understand that as a follower of Christ, you will inevitably find yourself in the middle of this same battle where your faith in Christ will conflict with the values of the culture that you live in. In fact, I would even go so far as to say, if you don't ever find yourself in conflict with the larger culture, if you're a follower of Christ and nobody ever gets mad at you for your faith in Christ, if nobody's irritated ever with you for your faith in Christ, it either means you're so lukewarm in your imitation of Jesus that no one considers you remarkable. Or else it means that you're such a coward in never opening your mouth 
that nobody knows why you're remarkable. One of those two things. Jesus himself, I want you to just listen to what Jesus says about the inevitability of persecution. He says this, this is John 15 in the New Testament. He says, if the world hates you, keep in mind that it hated me first. If you belong to the world, the city of the human city, if you belong to the human city, it would love you as its own. As it is, you do not belong to the human city, but I have chosen you out of the human city. You're now a resident of the city of God. That's why the world hates you. Remember what I told you. A servant is not greater than his master. If they persecuted me, they will persecute you also. The inevitability of persecution for faith in Christ. Now look, none of us knows what will happen in the future. And we have no idea how serious the conflicts between our faith and our culture will become. We just don't know. Only God knows that. But I do want to suggest to you something, that the only way that Daniel could have responded to this conflict in the way that he did was by being aware that this kind of conflict was going to be a very real possibility for him and preparing himself for it ahead of time. He doesn't ask for the conflict in this passage. He didn't choose the timing of this conflict. Like I can imagine that Daniel was just kind of hanging around with some of his other you know, teenage friends, and all of a sudden, he finds himself in his own personal zero hour. And I wonder, when such a zero hour comes into your life, how will you respond? So, for instance, what if your, what if your whole profession one day like, like what you do for a living, what you studied for, what you've spent years and years and years learning and trying to perfect your craft. What if, it, what if it became a closed door for anyone who professed faith in Christ? What would you do? Would you profess faith in Christ or would you deny Christ? What if universities and colleges denied entrance to anyone who proclaimed faith in Christ. What would you do? What would you tell your kids to do? Would you tell them to profess faith in Christ, or would you say deny Christ and get into college? Prepare for your future. What would you do? Or what if your belief in Christ subjected you to a loss of freedom in some way, perhaps even jail? What would you do? Have you you given that any thought? And are you prepared for it? I know it seems today so far away that it could ever happen in America. It seems so unreasonable, but it's possible that it could happen. And as I said, many people think it could happen in the very near future here in America. Some of these kinds of things. And wouldn't it be so easy in those moments to just give in? And deny Christ. In fact, I can imagine that some of you are hearing this today and you're thinking to yourself, wow, this is, Jeff, this is frightening. This is, this is depressing. I didn't come here for this. I wanted to be inspired. I wanted a good old Joel Osteen sermon. I wanted to know everything's going to be okay and, and we can be wealthy and healthy anytime we want to be. Well, this isn't what I came here for. And you're like, why wouldn't I just give in and and deny Christ? 
After all, isn't it, isn't my purpose in life to pursue life and liberty and, and happiness? Where's the encouragement here, Jeff? The encouragement is found in the book of Revelation. In fact, I will tell you, you know, a lot of people read the book of Revelation and they, they, they want to read it to get a, like a timeline of everything that's going to happen in the end. And I'm not as convinced that you can do that. I do think that the major purpose of the book of Revelation was to encourage followers of Christ who at that time were facing terrible persecution and to inspire them to live heroic lives. And if you think about heroes for just a moment. One of the characteristics of heroes, guys like Daniel, is that they have a fidelity to something greater than their own hearts and their own lives. The mark of a hero is to say that this that I believe is true, and I'm going to stick with this, even though it's difficult for me, it hurts me, even though it hurts me, even though it might even be fatal to me, I'm going to stick with this because I know it's right, I know it's true. In other words, heroes live with a broader commitment than just a commitment to themselves. And this is why the book of Revelation was written, to to inspire you to live a heroic life. And so let me just give you my second point today. Trust me, this one is a lot shorter than the first one, so we're, we're just about done. But just let me make this second point here. I want you to get this. Here's what the book of Revelation was written for. To tell you that Jesus Christ has won the battle, so rejoice. That's why the book of Revelation is in the Bible. To tell you that Jesus Christ has won this battle between the human city and the city of God and that one day Jesus Christ will rule the world from his throne in the city of God. Jesus was the ultimate hero in that he was crucified on a cross for a cause bigger than just himself. On the cross, Jesus died out of obedience to his Father and out of love for you. But that's not all. He didn't just die. Listen to what the book of Revelation says about the battle between the human city and the city of God. Verse, uh, Revelation chapter 18, verse 21. Listen to this. It says, Then a mighty angel picked up a boulder the size of a large millstone and threw it into the sea. And he said, With such violence, the great city of Babylon will be thrown down, never to be found again. The music of harpists and musicians, pipers and trumpeters will never be heard in you again, Babylon. No worker of any trade will ever be found in you again, Babylon. The sound of a millstone will never be heard in you again, Babylon. The light of a lamp will never shine in you again, Babylon. The voice of a bridegroom and bride will never be heard in you again, Babylon. Your merchants were the world's important people. By your magic spell, the nations were led astray. And listen to this. In her, in Babylon, was found the blood of prophets and of God's holy people, of all who have been slaughtered on the earth, people who were sacrificed, who were martyred for their faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. God knows it. He sees it. He's aware of it. He didn't miss it. He knows what it's about. The writer of the book of Revelation goes on and he says in Revelation chapter 19, listen to this. I saw heaven standing open and there before me was a white horse whose rider is called Faithful and True. 
With justice, he judges and wages war. His eyes are like blazing fire, and on his head are many crowns. He has a name written on him that no one knows but he himself. He is dressed in a robe, dripped in, dipped in blood, and his name is the Word of God. The armies of heaven were following him, riding on white horses, and dressed in fine linen, white and clean. Coming out of his mouth is a sharp sword with which to strike down the nations. He will rule them with an iron scepter. He treads the winepress of the fury of the wrath of, all, of God Almighty on the human city. And on his robe and on his thigh, he has this name written, King of Kings and Lord of Lords. That's why the book of Revelation is in the Bible. It was written to cause you to put your eyes on the Lord Jesus Christ and to know that he is the victor. And if you keep your eyes focused on Jesus, you realize that Jesus Christ was victorious even as he gave his life away. And because of that, you are victorious. No matter what sacrifice you may be called to make, no matter what persecution you may experience, you are victorious because Jesus was victorious. Like Jesus Your life is more than just about your career or your income or your vacations or your personal fulfillment. You're part of something much greater than yourself. You're part of a revolution. And your hero is Jesus Christ. And out of love for Christ and out of love for his people, you too can be someone else's hero. Listen to this. One historian said that the reason that Christianity grew after Christ's death, like the reason it grew as compared to dozens of other religions was because, listen to this, Christians died better than anybody. They died with joy. They died with singing. They died forgiving forgiving their executioners. Zero hour. They died better. Christians died better than anyone else. This is why The revolution continued. One of the early church fathers, a guy by the name of Tertullian, said that the blood of Christians is the seed. You know what he's saying? He's saying that, he's saying the more you kill us, the more you persecute us, the more you torture us, the lower you put us, the faster we grow. The blood of the, of Christians, the blood of the martyrs is the seed of the revolution. Why? Because we look to Jesus, our hero. On the cross, Jesus Christ defeated the powers of evil that temporarily, right now, rule the world. And so as a follower of Christ, we're willing to make any sacrifice to be a part of his revolution. And we do it out of love for Christ, our hero. And to advance the revolution so that someone else can hear the gospel of Jesus Christ too. And even in my death, I will be victorious because my Savior was raised from the dead and he was victorious as well. I don't know. I don't know what the future looks like. Only God knows that. But if there comes a time where what Jesus said, is, where what Jesus said would be true becomes true, that you will face persecution just like he did. If there comes that time when you have to face your own personal zero hour, what decision will you make? And I suggest to you that the answer to that 
is who your hero is and who you put your eyes on. And if you put your eyes on the Lord Jesus Christ, you'll realize that whatever sacrifice you're called to make is far less than the sacrifice he was called to make and that no matter what sacrifice you make, you will be victorious because the Lord Jesus Christ is the King of kings and the Lord of lords. Would you bow your heads with me and let's pray together. These are sobering words, Lord Jesus. Discipleship in America has never meant any kind of significant persecution. I mean, there have been, you know, skirmishes. Some of us have had some trouble at work, maybe. Some of us have lost some friends, maybe. But never anything really significant. Lord, we don't know what the future holds. But Lord, would you prepare us even now? Make decisions. That through the power of the Spirit, that if a personal zero hour comes to us, that we would look to you, that we would make whatever sacrifice that you call us to make. That we would never deny our faith because nothing in this world is more important than you, Lord Jesus. Would you make us sober? Would you make us alert? Would you create in us a courage that comes from looking at you and you alone? And it's in your name, Lord Jesus Christ, that we pray. Amen. If or when a zero-hour moment makes its way into your life, what will you do? Faith in Christ has long been controversial and consequential, and there's reason to believe that our faith in Jesus as the modern American church, will become increasingly ostracizing. Well, again, thank you for joining us for the City Church Evansville podcast. If you're in the area, we'd love for you to visit either of our 9.15 or 11 a.m. services in downtown Evansville here at 314 Market Street. We're just two blocks south of the Lloyd off the First Avenue exit.